We are now known by the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. Eagerly maintaining the unity of the Spirit and united as the Church, the body of Christ. Made new in the fullness of his love, because in Christ all things are made new. Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to Christ Community Chapel. It's so good to see you this morning. Welcome to those of you who are over in East Hall. And if you happen to be watching on the internet, welcome. Thanks for taking time out of your day to be here with us. If we've not met before, my name is Jimmy Cozy. I'm the student ministry pastor here. And as was mentioned earlier, we're highlighting our student ministries a little bit this weekend. So our student bands are playing, our staff will be in the atrium, and we'd love to meet you, especially if you are a junior high or high school student. I would encourage you to take that little card out there after the service, spin the prize wheel. Everybody gets a prize. And so uh, it reminds me of this proverb that I just made up on the spot that goes like this. He who turns down free stuff is not as smart as he thinks he is. So come out and meet us. We would love to meet you. Uh, Our student ministry, like many organizations, has a set of values that govern how we do what we do. And number one on our list, the most important thing to us is that students would meet Jesus and take steps toward him. And another way of saying that is that we want students to be transformed, which has been our theme here at CCC throughout this year. So what we've said is that uh, we want to look different at the end of 2018 than we did at the beginning because of a way that God worked in our lives. And over the past couple of months, we have been doing the book of Ephesians together, both here on the weekends and then also in our community groups. And just a little bit of housekeeping here. Uh, We are extending Ephesians together by one week. And so uh, the passage that was supposed to be this weekend is Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. That's going to be pushed to next weekend. So this weekend's passage is Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 9. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. But one of the reasons that we chose this passage for this weekend is because it is so practical. Uh, The gospel is not just for Sunday morning. It's also for Monday morning and for the rest of the weekend. This is one of those passages that helps us make that connection between Sunday morning and Monday morning. So I'm going to go ahead and read Ephesians 6, uh, 1 through 9. Here's what it says. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So this is going to sound a little strange at first, but it will make sense as we go along. But this passage is first and foremost about power. And every single one of us has power. Some of us may have more power than others. We may have different types of power than others, but every single one of us has power. And so the question that this passage is answering is, what impact does Jesus have on my power, if any at all? And so if you have power over anybody, this passage has something to say to you. 
And on the other side, if anybody has power over you, then this passage has something to say to you. And so here's how we're going to proceed. First, we are going to talk about a change. We're going to talk about a way that Jesus transforms how we look at our power. And then once we've talked about that, we're going to look at the two specific areas in the passage and see how that plays out in our lives. But we'll start with the change. And the change is the way that Jesus transforms our power. And here's how I know that this passage is all about power. If you skip back into Ephesians chapter 5, uh, you can see. So basically what's happened to this point in the book of Ephesians. So the book of Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. And in the first few chapters, what he does is he lays out in crystal clarity who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And then he moves into some sections where he begins to lay out what that looks like practically in our lives. So what are the characteristics of people who have been transformed by Jesus? And the beginning of chapter 5, there is this big list of different things that are true of people who've been transformed by Jesus, things that people who have been transformed by Jesus do. And then at the end of them, in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21, he says that we do all of these things and we do them this way. Ephesians 5 21 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so what the Apostle Paul is acknowledging here is that every one of us, we have a common currency in our relationships and our interactions. And that currency is power. And so we're born asking three questions. How much power do I have? How can I use it to maximize my benefit? And how can I get more? How much power do I have? How can I use it to maximize my benefit? And how can I get more? And human history is littered with power struggles. The, the whole of human history is filled with the stories of the rise and fall of, of different empires, different kingdoms, and all of those are just power struggles. One group is in power, and then another group takes it from them. Uh, this past week, we had an election, and, and everybody gets so fired up around election time because there's power at stake, and everybody wants to grab as much of the pie as they can, even in our individual lives. This is the reason that when your boss comes to you and offers you a promotion or a pay raise, it's so difficult to turn it down. It's because we have this common currency. And so when Paul says in Ephesians 5.21 that we submit to one another, uh, he's saying something really important that changes within us when we're transformed by Jesus. So the verb here, to submit, he uses sort of a unique thing in the original language that we don't have an equivalent for in modern English. It's called the middle voice. So we have the active voice, where if I were to speak in the active voice, I would say, I force you to submit to me. And we have the passive voice, where I would say, I am forced by you to submit with me, to submit to me, or to submit to you. But the middle voice is when the subject of the verb is also the recipient of the action. So what the verb to submit in the middle voice is saying, he's saying, I force myself to submit, or you force yourself to to submit. So he's saying you make a voluntary choice to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so what he's saying is that as followers of Jesus, the way that we look is, at power is transformed because we voluntarily opt out of the power struggle that is so built into us. And he says that we do this out of reverence for Christ. And the reason he says this is because Jesus is our ultimate example in this. I want to read another passage that the Apostle Paul wrote in the book of Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. He's talking about Jesus. He says, 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so what this is saying is that uh, Jesus had more power than anybody has ever had. He was fully and completely God. He had equality with God. And he voluntarily laid that down, stepped into human history, and then went to the cross on our behalf. That Jesus laid down his power for our benefit so that we could be forgiven, so that our relationship with God could be restored, and so that we can be made whole again. And that's the gospel. That we were broken and we were powerless to do anything about it. And that Jesus had all the power and he laid it down for us so that we could be made whole again. And so what happens in this section of Ephesians is that Paul points this out. He says, we lay down our power for others because our example in this is Jesus in the way that he laid down his power for us. And then what he does is he proceeds into a section where he explains how this plays out in our everyday lives. And the way that he does this is he mirrors a household code, which would have been common at the time. And so at the time that this was written, it was written in a highly patriarchal society, which means that in any household, the father had supreme authority over anybody who was in that household. And so whether they were his wife or his children or servants or workers that, that worked within the home, essentially anybody who lived within that household was considered the property of the father. And so he had supreme power over them. And so it was common for households in that time period to have what was called a household code, which would lay out expectations for how all of those groups of people were to interact with the father. So there would be something for the wife, there would be something for the children, and then there would be something for the bond servants. And so what Paul does here is he takes this principle of you now as a follower of Jesus lay your power down for others, and he rewrites the household code and shows, okay, this is how this principle plays out in your everyday lives, in your everyday interactions with these different groups of people. And so last week we covered the marriage section. This week we're going to talk about those other two. And we'll start with uh, family relationships, which happens in Ephesians chapter 6 verses 1 through 4. Let me go ahead and read that again. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Okay, so I would, I would guess that when I was a teenager, this was the most frequently quoted passage of Scripture in my house. And, and if you're a, a kid and, and you're in here, I would, there's a good chance your parents just gave you a little bit of a nudge and kind of said, hey, pay attention. You're going to like what's coming next. But um, it's interesting to see how the common household code is turned on its head a little bit here. Because when this starts and it says, children, obey your parents, it would have had everybody in the room nodding. Because as I said before, children were considered property and that's it. They were an asset for the father to figure out whatever he wanted to do. If he wanted to kill his children, he had the freedom to do that because they were considered his property. And so the fact that this even says anything to the father, to the parents, would have been unprecedented for this time. But it says how this idea of laying down our power plays out both for children and parents. And so we'll start with children. It says that children are to obey their parents. 
And really what this means is that children are to lay down their power in obedience to their parents. And, and children definitely have power. I know this better than anybody. So I have a, a four-year-old, her name is Hollis, and a two-year-old whose name is, or an almost two-year-old whose name is Elliot. And I've seen this play out in my youngest daughter recently. So for the longest time, she was this sweet, innocent, sort of round-faced little cherub who would just roll around on the floor at our house and laugh and smile. But as of late, that started to change a little bit. She's walking and moving around, and there will be times where I'll say, Elliot, do something, do this, and she'll ignore me for a few seconds, and then she'll look me right in the eye, and she'll say, no. And the older children get, the more intelligent they become about how to maximize their power and use their leverage when they find it over their parents to the, to the maximum of their ability. My, daughter, my oldest daughter has figured this out. She has perfected the art of uh, what I would call a tactical tantrum. So a tantrum that is timed perfectly in order to maximize her leverage. So here's an example. Uh, recently, my family, we went on a, we traveled together. And uh, I hesitate to use the word vacation to describe what happens when a family with a four-year-old and a two-year-old travels, because for the parents, that wouldn't be an accurate description of what takes place. So I call it more of a, a family trip, which is still enjoyable, but it's different than vacation. And so uh, we were on a family trip, and the struggle that we always have on a family trip is to get the girls to go to sleep because they're out of their element. They're trying to sleep in a different place. They, they sometimes have to sleep in the same room. They sleep in separate rooms at home. And so this is always a big struggle for us, a big battle. And my oldest daughter has seen this and figured it out and discovered how she can use it to maximize her leverage. Because what she'll do is she will wait for her younger sister to fall asleep. And then she'll ask for something. And when we say no, she knows all she has to do is pump fake a tantrum. And she'll get a much more quick response from us because we don't want her to wake her younger sister up because she's already sleeping. And that would start the whole process over again. And so anytime a child says no or a child throws a tantrum to try to, to try to get what they want, what that child is really saying is this, you don't have power over me, I have power over me. But if you're a child in here today, this says children obey your parents. And what it is saying is that with Jesus as your example, you obey your parents by laying that power down for them. But it also speaks to the parents and it says there are so many things that we could draw out from the section where it speaks to the parents. I just want to pull out one. Uh, the one that I want to pull out is it says that fathers or parents are to bring their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And what this is saying is that if I am a parent, I am invited to take responsibility for the spiritual growth and well-being of my children. And at first, this may not seem like a laying down of power, but it really is. Because first and foremost, you have to lay down power because you have to give up control. You may have to give up some dreams that you had for your children of things you wanted them to do or accomplish because if you're going to allow them to grow spiritually, then you have to allow God to have control in some places where you may not have. And he may move them in directions that you would not have moved them in. It also means you need to lay down power because you may need to give up uh, lifestyle habits that you hold dear in order to better create an environment for your children to come to know and love Jesus. It may mean that you need to uh, model forgiveness and ask for forgiveness, which is an extreme way to lay down power. But all of these things and so many more. But uh, what this passage says is that 
parents are to lay down their power for their children. And one of the ways that I can do that as a parent is by accepting responsibility for the spiritual growth and well-being of my children. And then uh, the other area that he addresses are what are called bond servants. And uh, this happens in verses 5 through 9. I'm going to go ahead and read that section now. It says this, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Okay, so before we make the connection to how this passage applies to us today in our culture, there are some issues that we need to walk through that are specifically related to the passage. So the word bondservant is exactly what it sounds like. People who were bondservants in this time were essentially slaves or servants who were a part of these households. And the concept of slavery engenders immediate negative reaction from us, as well it should. It deserves to. But before we talk about what this means for us, there are two wrong ways that we can read this passage, and I want to talk about those first. The first wrong way that we can read this passage is to say uh, that it condones slavery. And at various points in human history, uh, this passage has been used to justify and to perpetuate slavery. Most recently, you would have heard in the mid-1800s, white clergymen using this passage to justify to their African-American slaves that they should stay instead of leaving and they should, they should listen and obey to everything that they say. And I just want to say that if you are uh, looking to find the Bible's position on slavery, this is not the right passage to look at for a number of reasons. Uh, one of them is that Paul is being really practical here, and I'll explain more about that in a moment. But the overwhelming message of Scripture speaks against the practice of slavery strongly. Uh, from the very beginning, God's Word makes it clear that every single human being is created in the image of God, and just by virtue of existence has inherent dignity and value and worth, and that no human being has more or less of that than any other human being. And it also says that every human being has been broken by sin and nobody is more broken or less broken. Broken is broken. We're all in need of Jesus to restore us. And it's actually interesting that it, were, it was followers of Jesus who sort of led the way in the abolitionist movement. Uh, one of the primary characters in the abolitionist movement was a man named William Wilberforce who was a member of English Parliament who was also a follower of Jesus. And he noticed that he was unable to reconcile the practice of slavery, which was the law of the land at the time, with what God's word says about human beings and about their relationship with God. And so he started the abolitionist movement in England. And so if you're looking for a passage to give you the Bible's position on slavery, this is not the one. I could point you in so many other directions, but the overwhelming message of scripture speaks against slavery, which is an evil and broken system. But there's another wrong way we could read this passage. Another wrong way we could read this passage is to look at it and say, see, look, uh, Paul had an opportunity here to speak out against a broken system, and he didn't do that. And in fact, 
he used words that actually could have been used to perpetuate that system. And so what this means is that uh, the Bible is outdated, it's regressive, it's backward. And so we can kind of throw some of these sections of the New Testament out because it's clear that they don't apply to today. And if that's what you're thinking, I would ask you to consider two things. First of all, consider what I just said, that the overwhelming message of Scripture speaks against slavery. But then I'd also ask you to consider that Paul was being extremely practical here. He was trying to help the people he was writing to make the connection between Sunday morning and Monday morning. He was trying to help them in the midst of their immediate circumstances. I have no doubt that Paul would have said that slavery is an evil and broken system. But at the same time, that wasn't going to change overnight. And in the Roman Empire, which is where this was written, a third of the population or more were slaves. There were 60 million people who were slaves. Any work that was done in the Roman Empire was done by slaves. In fact, the Romans had a saying that went like this. They would say, what's the use in conquering the world if I have to do work? And so slaves would do the majority of the work in the population. And so the people who were receiving this, a high percentage of them would have been slaves. And so they needed help in terms of what does it look like to follow Jesus and to walk with him in my current circumstances. And that's what Paul was trying to help them with here. And so for us, thanks to people like William Wilberforce and countless others who have continued to fight for the dignity and worth of, human, of any human being, we don't really have that same system in place. And none of us are, are likely to be in the type of environment that the people receiving this we're in. And so what we need to do is draw the closest parallel we can. And I think there are principles that we can pull out of this passage that apply effectively to us in our, in our work lives. And so uh, there are two work relationships that I think this passage is really helpful in. The first are relationships with people who have power over us. And then the second are relationships with people who we have power over. And I'll start with that first one. So uh, if you have a job, it's likely that you have a boss. There are not a lot of jobs that are, are bossless jobs. Those are few and far between. And uh, one of the things that this passage says, there are a ton of things that this passage says to bond servants. But the one that I want to look at is it says that um, we are to, they are to work as bond servants of Christ. And what this means is that we are to lay down our power. And even somebody who is on the opposite end of a power dynamic still has power. If you are at the very bottom of the organizational chart in your organization, you still have power. You have the power to uh, not show up to work. You have the power to choose to do your do job poorly or to not give a good effort. You have the power to undermine your supervisor. You have the power to... Um, break down interpersonal relationships. You have a lot of power, even if you're at the very bo bottom of the organizational totem pole. And uh, there's a passage in the book of Jeremiah that's an Old Testament prophet. And uh, in that situation, the people of God are exiled in a pagan nation. And it's interesting what God says to them, because what he says to them, it's in Jeremiah 29. He says, they are to work for the welfare of the city that they're in, because in that city's welfare, they will also find their welfare. And I think that somewhat applies here. Now, we may not be exiles in a pagan nation or slaves, but we may have a difficult work situation or a difficult boss. And what this passage is saying is that uh, one of the ways that we can lay down our power is by working within that situation as if we were working for Christ 
himself, by, by doing as well as we can, by being respectful, by building good relationships, by not undermining our supervisor or our company. And this is a laying down of power because we could use our position to do the opposite of that. But when we do this, what we do is we represent Christ in an extremely meaningful and powerful way. But this passage also speaks to those who have power over others. And I know there are probably some of those types of people in this room. If you manage any people or if you lead anything, then I think this passage also has some things to say to you. And I think what it has to say to you is wrapped up in verse 9. So uh, the passage gives all of these commandments to bond servants. It says, Obey with fear and trembling. Do it with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Don't be people pleasers. Do the will of God from the heart. Render service with a good will. It says all of these things. But then in verse 9, it says, Masters, do the same to them. Which this is where the household code of the time is taken and being turned on its head because what Paul is saying is that the same standards that apply to the bond servants also apply to the masters. And so what he's saying is that if you have power over anybody, one of your responsibilities as a follower of Jesus is to lay that power down. And we do this, number one, remembering who is in power over us, and that's Jesus himself. And then also remembering what he did with his power. And so what that means is if you have power over somebody, what Jesus calls us to is not to consolidate that power, but to be able to lay it down and not to maximize our own benefit from it, but to be able to use it to benefit others. And the best way that I can sort of explain this is to share a couple of stories that I heard recently that, where I saw this in action. The first uh, came from Tim Keller, who is the pastor of a, a large church in New York City. And he told a story recently that I heard of a, a woman who showed up his church and she, and she was asked, okay, why did you come? How did you get here? And she said, I came here because of my boss. And so she went on to tell this story. She had just recently started at a new company. And shortly into her time there, she made a mistake that was uh, significant enough that it would have been a fireable offense. And so she knew she had to go to her boss and she knew that he was going to find out about it. And she figured when he found out about it, what was going to happen was that he was going to fire her. And so she went and she shared the mistake with her boss uh, but instead of doing that, what her boss did, he had been at the company for a while and he knew he had enough credibility to absorb the mistake. And so instead of firing her, he went to the people who were in power over him and he absorbed the heat for that mistake so that she could keep her job. And so she said that later she went to him and she asked, why did you do that for me? And he said, do you really want to know? And she said, yes. And he said, I did that because that's what Jesus did for me. That's what Jesus did for me. And then he was able to share the truth of who Jesus is with her and she came to know Jesus and then showed up at Tim Keller's church. And that's what it looks like to not consolidate your power, but rather to lay it down for others. And then the other story is a story of a, a man named Adam Voss, who was an assistant prosecutor in the city of Boston. And uh, anytime somebody commits a crime, prosecutors have an enormous amount of power over that person because they have the power to choose uh, what charges are pursued, how they're pursued, even have influence on sentencing. So if somebody commits a, a crime, the prosecutor has quite a bit of power in that situation. And so Adam Voss was an assistant prosecutor in the city of Boston. In 2009, he was given the case of a young man named Chris. And Chris was uh, an African-American senior in high school. Uh, he was hoping to go to college. And through a series of bad decisions, 
He ended up stealing 30 laptops from a Best Buy and selling them on eBay. And he was caught and his case was brought to Chris and in this, or brought to Adam. And in this moment, this prosecutor had an enormous amount of power over Chris's life because the way the law was written, each individual laptop could carry its own felony charges. So he had the ability to bring up to 30 felony charges against this young man named Chris, which would have forever changed his life. It would have involved a lot of jail time. And then even when that was done, it would have made it impossible for him, for him, almost impossible for him to find work or to do anything that he had hoped to do with his life. And so in this moment, this prosecutor held this young man's life in his hands. And so what he chose to do was this. He worked with Chris to recover 75% of the laptops. And then he worked with Chris and the Best Buy that he stole them from to develop a plan through community service and other means to pay down the rest of the debt of the other laptops. And he said uh, six years later, he was at a gathering for top young professionals in the city of Boston. And he was walking through this room with lots of people in it. And Somebody came up to him and just wrapped him up in a hug and the person took a step back and it was Chris. And Chris was now uh, the branch manager of a branch of a major bank in Boston. And Chris said, uh, I don't know if you remember me, but you changed my life. You changed my life. And that right there is a new way of looking at power. It's a new way of using power. And every one of us has power. That power can be exercised in our marriages, it can be exercised in our friendships, it can be exercised in our families, and it can be exercised at work. And the new way of looking, looking at our power is that we don't consolidate our power, we lay it down. We don't maximize our own benefit, we use it for the benefit others of others. And the, the reason we do this is because we remember two things. We remember, number one, where our power came from. If anybody has power, they have it because they have it on loan from Jesus. And then we remember what Jesus did with his power, that instead of holding on to it, he let go of it. Instead of maximizing his own benefit, he used it for us so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be restored to him, so that we could be made whole again, and so that we could be transformed. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. And we thank you just for your word and for the way that you speak to us through it. And we thank you um, above all else for Jesus. We thank you for his love for us. We thank you for the way that he laid his power down for us so that we could be made whole again, so that we could be reconciled, and so that we could be set free. And we pray that we would live out that truth in our lives each day. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.